Hello, welcome listeners. Welcome to the long-awaited first ever episode of the Lawyers for Employers podcast presented by CC Partners. My name is Mike McClellan and I am one of the Lawyers for Employers. Working with CC Partners, for those of you who don't know us, we are a labor and employment boutique law firm working from our main office in beautiful downtown Brampton, but we also have satellite offices in Barrie, Sudbury, and we occupy a nice corner of cyberspace at www.ccpartners.ca. I'm happy to be joined today by the two people who put the C and the C in CC Partners. Good morning, Susan Crawford and David Shonton. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Mike. And just so uh, we all know, in today's episode, we're going to give our listeners a bit of an overview about our firm, our practice, what we do, uh, and the kind of things that employers uh, ought to know when looking for good legal advice. But one thing we're not going to do today is give actual legal advice. So, Susan, I want to start off with you. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about the uh, origin story of CC Partners? Of course, Mike. Dave and I were working in a law firm in downtown Toronto, one of our competitors now, and we decided that we wanted to start our own practice. And so we left the big city and decided to put our business roots and, and personal roots down in Brampton and decided to form a new law firm, originally called uh, Crawford & Shondon and now CC Partners. Great. And Dave, why labor and employment law, and specifically why the management side? Thanks, Mike. And I just wanted to add to what uh, Susan said there. Uh, somewhat uh, remarkably, um, we've now been practicing together for over 25 years. So it's, uh, it, it has been a, a successful adventure. And in terms of uh, labor and employment law, well, my interest in labor and employment derives from the workplace. Um, I've always thought the workplace uh, and work generally has a significant impact on uh, most people in society and the community and I always wanted to try and have some kind of impact in that area. I'm naturally inclined to be more interested in the business side of things which is why I ended up uh, ultimately representing the employer side of, of these issues. And on the issue of issues, uh, labor and employment law is uh, remarkably diverse. It's uh, often front page uh, news um, on everything from health and safety to um, employment equity to sexual harassment. And harassment generally seems to be a big issue right now. So uh, certainly the, the diversity of issues is particularly attractive from my standpoint. So. Uh, now, Dave, you know, a lot of people use the words labor and employment interchangeably. Are they the same thing? And what exactly is labor and employment law? Well, in my mind, Mike, they are not the same thing, but I certainly appreciate why people use them interchangeably. Labor law, to me, deals with the collective bargaining type of relationship, typically a tripartite relationship involving unions, employers, and employees. Whereas um, I find the employment law side uh, focuses more on just the employer and employee relationship. In fact, uh, to a large extent, the reason Susan and I started the firm um, is that we both brought very different things to the, the table, so to speak. Uh, Susan's practice largely being on the employment law side, mine being more the traditional unionized workplace environment. So Susan, in your experience, what kind of a business needs 
uh, a labor and employment lawyer. So the shameless self-marketer in me would say, of course, that every employer needs labor and employment law counsel. Um, but kidding aside, I actually think that that's true. Uh, unfortunately, I think there are too many businesses that think that they can do their own labor and employment legal work. Uh, and while that is certainly very good for our business uh, when things go south, so to speak, preventative uh, legal advice is really important for any size of business, any type of business. Uh, and the reality is that there is just such significant liability these days with respect to workplace issues that it truly is something that I think every type of employer, be you, uh, you know, a sole practitioner or sole proprietor to a large global enterprise, really needs to have specialized labor and employment counsel to assist them with workplace issues. So would you say that when an employer is faced with an issue, that's the time for them to look for a lawyer? Well, that's when we, uh, ret when we get a lot of clients, for sure. Uh, ideally, a more proactive approach would have labor counsel involved, for example, at the beginning of an employment relationship. So when you should be putting people on employment agreements, that's when you need good counsel to assist you with all of the hoops and hurdles that you have to go through uh, to create enforceable employment agreements. That's one example. In terms of dismissals, we obviously prefer that employers call us before they dismiss someone, not after they dismiss them, and find out that their liability is sometimes 10 times greater than they thought. So ideally, employers are uh, more proactive in their approach and retain counsel uh, before the crisis. I'll even piggyback on that, Susan, and Dave, I'm sure you can appreciate this as well. Uh, even when we uh, are working kind of on the labor side of what we do and we have clients who work with a collective agreement and they uh, have certain understandings about what the collective agreement means and they say, you know, oh, this person had three different issues of discipline against them, so we went ahead and and terminated them and then they get slapped with a grievance and we get involved and when we look at the situation we kind of say well you know if, if we had gotten involved maybe a little bit sooner we could have pointed you as to maybe a little bit of a more appropriate uh, approach. Yeah I, I agree Mike and and the one thing about the the labor relationship is you, you tend to have more of a window to problem-solve than you do in the typical employment uh, relationship and what I mean by that is you have a grievance and arbitration process and so I would think at a minimum um, if, if, if clients consult with us during that grievance process then often there is an opportunity to problem-solve uh, along the way without incurring the additional and, and considerable cost of an arbitration process so um, whereas I think in, in uh, Susan's environment the employment context it's often much more difficult. Uh, you've got lawyers involved and you've got litigation ongoing and uh, that process just doesn't seem to be as conducive to problem solving. In a nutshell, I think if I could describe the difference between a, a union and non-union business for our, our employer listeners, to think of it this way is that in a non-union setting, 
there's always a, an employment contract that exists, whether it's written or not, they're either express or implied terms, but that's a contract that exists between the employer and the individual employee. But that doesn't exist in a union setting where the contract is between the employer and a union representing the employees in the workplace. So I think that's probably the easiest way to just mm -hmm. conceptualize the different relationships. Uh, but uh, I want to turn back to you, Susan. Can you maybe tell us, give us some examples of some common issues that employers uh, will come to you for advice? So one of the issues that I get clients coming to me uh, on a regular basis, if not daily basis, uh, or a misconception, I guess, is thinking that you can dismiss a non-union employee with only employment standards notice or termination, or sorry, or severance pay if, uh, if the employer is a severance employer. And so we get a lot of clients that come to us having already dismissed somebody and having paid a, a employee with four years of service four weeks under employment standards and being quite perplexed by the fact that a lawyer has sent them a letter saying that they're entitled to uh, eight months. So actually, actually let, me, let me stop you there because we, uh, we did get a, a question uh, online through Twitter and you can find us on Twitter at CC Partners Law. Kind of up this alley so I wanted to just run it by you now Susan. Sure. And the question was uh, I'm an employer do I have to give my employee two weeks notice of termination? So in a non-union this is a non-unionized uh, relationship where an employee would be governed by either a an actual written contract or a uh, an implied contract the employer is obligated to provide in a non-cause dismissal either what the contract requires if they have a written contract or uh, what the common law requires and so the common law will in almost all circumstances be more than two weeks so for example if you're dismissing someone with four years of service you may have an employment agreement that provides that you only have to give employment standards notice in which case that employee would be entitled to four weeks uh, however, if you do not have an employment agreement and you're dismissing someone, depending on the circumstances, the employer's liability could be anywhere between four and six months of salary, which is obviously quite, uh, quite a bit more significant. So the, the misconception that two weeks notice is enough is, is almost in every case not going to be correct. Well, that's good to know for sure. Dave, what about you? What are some common issues that employers come to you uh, to look for advice? Well, given the nature of my practice, ideally employers uh, come to me fairly early on um, in terms of if they have any concerns with potential unionization within their workplace. So um, there are certainly positive employment practices that, that can be taken that uh, let's just say reduce the risk of, of uh, uh, potential unionization um, but so that would be kind of one area and then they from there typically we would ideally get involved in union negotiations um, involving the negotiation of a collective agreement and I think council involvement in, at that stage is particularly critical because um, Yes, you can have an employment contract that governs a relationship between one employee and that employer, but a collective agreement will apply to everybody in the bargaining unit, be it a few 
uh, employees to hundreds to thousands of employees. And the careful drafting of a collective agreement, especially if you can anticipate when it comes to compensation issues, scheduling issues, or workplace change, is critical for the viability of, a, of a, an employer. Following the negotiation aspect, then we typically get involved in collective agreement administration, um, interpretation, application, grievance and arbitration matters. And it's a unique problem-solving opportunity that exists in a unionized workplace, and if it's used effectively, it can resolve most, if not all, workplace issues. So. I tend to see those things uh, that derive out of the collective agreement, but uh, as a result of uh, changes, uh, some legislative, but mostly um, based on what the courts have determined, you also see arbitrators nowadays doing the full gamut of uh, employment matters. Everything from human rights issues to occupational health and safety issues to potentially pension issues. And, and for that reason, the labor practice is, is not simply collective agreement administration anymore, but um, routinely dealing with accommodation, disability claims, pension matters. So. Susan, we're recording this in December of 2017. Is there any particular hot button issue coming from employers or that employers ought to be aware about? Sure. Um, I would say there are two areas that we have seen a dramatic increase in uh, issues being raised and uh, workplace disputes arising from. Uh, those are both um, related to human rights issues. The first is harassment. We have some new legislation in the last couple of years that have provided employees with greater protections and uh, more procedural obligations to employers to investigate harassment complaints. And so we've seen a marked increase in the number of harassment complaints that are being made against uh, either co-employees or supervisors in the workplace. The second is family accommodation uh, under the Human Rights Code, so accommodating people based on family status. We've seen a number of issues arise for our clients, challenging issues with people who need to be accommodated for family status reasons, uh, be it child care or elder care. Uh, and things of that nature. So we're seeing a, a, a real increase in those types of claims and they're, they're complex and they're not easy to resolve and they can create tremendous liability for employers. And I just want to add to that, Mike, the other one that uh, I think is fairly significant is mental health related type claims. Um, largely driven by the fact that I don't think most employers have a particularly good understanding of mental health issues. You're also seeing just generally increasing pressure, uh, work demands, family life complications, Susan alluded to family status. You've got a generation, uh, some refer to the savage generation, where they're trying to deal with elder issues, they're trying to deal with uh, childcare issues, and increasing work pressures, and frankly, a lot of people aren't coping particularly well with, with, with those demands. So. Similarly, when it comes to people making claims for mental health related issues, I don't think the insurance industry has uh, quite figured that out and we have lots of, uh, frankly, endless disputes regarding short-term disability or long-term disability entitlement. And, you know, those are very, very significant claims. And if you can imagine, just that's just about the money side. We also have to deal with the issue of getting people back to work 
and accommodating people into back into the workplace when the the pressures of the workplace or what's causing them to be absent is uh, particularly complex. I want to stick with uh, human rights. Uh, we got another good question uh, at hashtag AskCCPartners. Uh, a few weeks ago, we tweeted out that uh, there's a case in British Columbia that's going to go to the British Columbia Human Rights Tribunal, and it's uh, a member of the Iron Workers Union in British Columbia was uh, prevented from running uh, for a, a, an elected union position because he had been convicted of cocaine possession. And the question we got uh, at Ask CC Partners was, is criminal conviction now a protected human rights ground? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, in Ontario, at least, uh, the criminal conviction itself is not a protected ground. It is a protected ground if you've been convicted of a criminal offense for which a pardon has been granted. I don't think the law has gone quite so far as to create a human rights protection for criminal conviction. But another issue that is involved here is there uh, certainly may be human rights protection uh, for a drug addiction. Uh, and this is something that sometimes surprises our clients to learn that a drug or alcohol or substance uh, addiction uh, is considered at law a disability. And with a disability, there's a corresponding responsibility on the employer to accommodate that employee up to the point of undue hardship. So another good, astute, insightful question from one of our listeners uh, using the hashtag AskCCPartners. And I just would add to that, Mike, um, that unfortunately you're not going to get a lot of uh, conclusiveness even by looking at the case law in this area. Um, and on, on the last point, in terms of uh, an addiction and accommodation, uh, there is a significant diversion of opinion in the arbitral world in Ontario, by way of example, as to whether or not somebody with an addiction can be excused for theft in the workplace, for example, um, especially when they're uh, stealing drugs or something related to their addiction. So, so um, it's very much an evolving area. Well, if I'm not mistaken, I think we actually blogged on just that issue not too long ago, and you can find our weekly blogs online at www.ccpartners.ca. And Dave, I think that'd be a good idea for maybe a future episode of our podcast. Excellent idea. Talking yeah. about accommodations and particularly these kind of disability accommodations. So um, I think we're close to wrapping up our episode, but one thing I want to ask uh, each of you, Dave and Susan, uh, from your experiences, and you know, you've said you've been practicing for together for upwards of 25 years, what do our clients particularly like about CC Partners? Well, what's not to like about CC Partners is what I'd like to know, but uh, <laughs> I think what our clients like about us as a firm, uh, a couple of things. One is we're very service driven and so uh, it's very important to us that our clients feel like their issues are uh, not just a priority for them, uh, which they obviously are, but also a priority for our firm. And so we, we spend a lot of time when we train our associates and our articling students uh, to, to really talk about the importance of serving clients. So we don't have transactional clients. In fact, we have several clients that Dave and I have been working for for almost 25 years. Uh, and that's something we're very proud of uh, as we celebrate the firm's 20th anniversary in 2018. So service for sure, and I think we also have a real team approach to how we practice law. Uh, we 
quite often we'll have a file where we have uh, a partner who oversees, an associate who does the bulk of the work because it's more cost effective for the client, and then our articling and summer students uh, doing research and whatnot. And we really promote that uh, so that not only are clients getting uh, a cost effective uh, representation, but they also know that there's more than just one person they can turn to uh, when they do have uh, either questions or if uh, an emergency comes up in the workplace. I don't think I have to add too much to that, uh, Mike. Um, obviously, service and responsiveness in, in our world is, is particularly important. Um, I think the one area that I would just probably highlight a little bit further would be uh, the other element of service is um, cost effectiveness and tied to the, the cost effectiveness would be uh, expertise for a particular problem. So um, we have a, the full gamut of lawyers at different stages within our organization. We've got uh, you know, the more senior folks, although Susan won't like me referring to her in that capacity, but uh, we have the more senior folks. Seasoned, I think. Seasoned, uh, seasoned, there we go. Um, we have the more senior folks who can deal with the more complex issues and or provide guidance along the way for uh, more junior lawyers within our office. And we've, we've really tried to find alternate billing arrangements for our clients to meet some of their budget issues. Um, uh, cost effective can mean two things. One is assigning the right lawyer to a file. It can also mean providing alternate billing arrangements, uh, whether it's fixed fees, uh, per diems, uh, retainer arrangements, that just allow our clients to better budget to deal with their labor and employment law problem solving within their workplace in a particular calendar year over a particular time frame. So, so that I think has uh, certainly allowed us to grow our business in the last few years. Well, I'm going to add another one, and it's a piece of feedback I've received from a, a number of clients is they like our location. Uh, we're, we're outside of downtown Toronto. We're right in the heart of downtown Brampton. We're very accessible by the 410, 401, 407. And, you know, having satellite offices in Barrie and Sudbury means we're well positioned to represent and advise clients all throughout Ontario and even outside of the province as well. Um, so that should just about wrap up episode one of the uh, Lawyers for Employers podcast brought to you by CC Partners. And uh, check back soon for uh, episode two. We're going to be talking about all the legislative changes in Ontario that have come by way of Bill 148. Thank you for listening. Find us online at www.ccpartners.ca.